everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That is Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Circle Opens. I am Sarah. I hope everybody is having, if not a great week, then hopefully an above average week. And on New Year's Day, I had time finally to sit down and read Gwendy's Magic Feather. Uh, This was written primarily by Richard Shizmar. And if you um, constant readers remember, Gwendy's Button Box was co-written by Stephen King and Shizmar. And this is the sequel to that novel. Well, novella. It's a short story. I really enjoyed Magic Feather. I have, I don't have the review up at my blog, but I do have um, the review for it up at my Good Goodreads account. I do have a Goodreads account. And if you guys are on Goodreads, you can find me at Sarah E.K. And I think that, I, I'm pretty sure that I prefer Buttonbox, but... Shizmar still did a really good job at uh, writing a Castle Rock story on his own. He really was able to tap into the feel of the town and Gwendy herself. And we do see a lot of familiar faces in Gwendy's Magic Feather from Castle Rock, which is always a welcome delight for me. I love Castle Rock stories. Um, I kind of view them as I do when I reread the Harry Potter series. Um, For me, going back to reading Harry Potter is kind of like... A familiar comforting thing, a way for me to de-stress. And uh, honestly, Castle Rock stories are kind of the same thing, which I know is weird because nothing good ever happens in Castle Rock. But um, it's a very uh, familiar feeling to me. It's like um, coming home in a way. Uh, a very terrifying home, but I enjoy it. And Shizmar does a really great job at staying true to Castle Rock and the characters who live in it. I don't really have a whole lot. I'm not going to give you any spoilers for this novella. I'm not going to go into an in-depth review here. Uh, you can read that at my Goodreads account if you want to. Um, but I enjoyed the subplot. Uh, there's some girls going missing in Castle Rock. And Gwendy is an adult now. She's a congresswoman who's had a very charmed life. Um, is that due to the button box? I don't know. She doesn't know, um, though she's curious. I think um, if there's any downsides to the novella, it's just it focuses way too long on Gwendy's day-to-day routine. Um, there's a lot of getting up, going for a jog, seeing her parents, checking her email, and it's like, okay, I really was getting kind of eager to get to um, more of the button box and what the deal was was with the feather and uh, the subplot of these girls going missing in Castle Rock. I would have liked to have had more of that in the novella than I got, but ultimately I did enjoy it. I'm glad that I bought it. It's now sitting comfortably on my shelf with all of my other horror novels. So if you guys have a chance and you enjoyed Gwendy's Button Box, I would definitely give Magic Feather a read. With that being said, I'm going to jump here into chapter 36, but first, a quick recap of chapter 35. Last week, Larry and Rita decided to leave New York City together. Larry is starting to realize what a burden 
Rita could become. And his own frustrations with her reach a boiling point when he discovers that after miles and miles of walking, she has been wearing expensive sandals, open-toed sandals that have caused her feet to bleed. The two of them fight and part ways, at least until Larry has a terrifying experience inside the pitch-black Lincoln Tunnel. Rita finds him finally, and together they make it through what is essentially a graveyard in that tunnel. Once they reach the other side, they realize that the superflu was not isolated only to New York City, like they had hoped, or rather Rita had hoped, but they continue on their way, leaving New York City behind them. This week, in Chapter 36, we return to a gunquit Maine, where Franz, Fran Goldsmith is sitting by a duck pond after the death of Gus Dinsmore. Gus, if you guys remember, was the parking lot attendant at the beach when we first met Fran, and she was going to meet Jess Ryder um, to tell him she was pregnant. Gus also shows up in the um, chapter where Fran lost her father, um, just to check on her very briefly. He's just mentioned. But now he's um, he's very sick, but he is alive. And he Fran finds him in his cubicle near the public beach parking lot. And while he still has the energy, she helps him um, down to a neighbor's house um, that is overlooking the ocean. Fran stays with Gus, even though he's delirious and stumbling and crashing around the room. She thought he would die that night. But the next morning, she finds him sitting up in bed and reading a Western. He is definitely more lucid than the night before. Fran ends up sitting with him and reading him four chapters of the book. She's optimistic that he's recovered and that he would be okay. But then Gus takes a turn for the worse, and he died at a quarter to eight that morning. This is a really sweet passage with Gus near the end of his life. Um, He's telling Fran how he wants an ice cream soda, the kind that his dad would treat him to every 4th of July, and then again at Labor Day when the fair came to Bangor. Unfortunately, the power has gone out in a gun quit by then. Um, We know from the last chapter uh, that we had with Nick Andros that the power was starting to fail throughout the country, and apparently it's already hit a gun quit, so there's no ice cream to be found. Fran so badly wanted to get Gus some ice cream that she even thought about asking Harold if he knew of anyone who might have an emergency generator hooked up to a freezer. But then Gus begins to breathe his last remaining breaths until he finally passes. Fran leaves him in the bed overlooking the ocean and covers him with a clean sheet. With that done, that's when she heads to the park, where she is now at the beginning of the chapter, throwing rocks into the duck pond. Fran finds herself not really thinking about anything, but in a good way, not the detached, apathetic way that had clouded her days after her dad had died. Fran was beginning to feel more and more like herself. She plants a rose bush in her father's garden, where she had buried him, but now she needs to decide what to do next, and that includes Harold Louder. Not only because she and Harold were the last, you know, they're the two remaining people in a gun quip, but she feels like she has no idea what will become of him if she's not around to take care of him. He needs somebody to watch out for him, and Fran feels like, obviously, she's the only one left to do so. Fran still doesn't really like Harold, but he did show her some decency in his own way after her father died, and he left her alone, allowing her time to grieve her parents in peace. 
She still saw him around town, driving Roy Brannigan's Cadillac, and she can still hear the clacking of his typewriter in his bedroom, even a mile away, which probably emphasizes the enormity of their situation with just how quiet it is in that town. Fran is still convinced that structure is not completely lost. There would be other people, no matter what Harold said. If the system of authority had temporarily broken down, they would just have to find the scattered others and reform it. It didn't occur to her to wonder why authority seemed to be such a necessary thing to have, any more than it occurred to her to wonder why she had automatically felt responsible for Harold. It just was. Structure was a necessary thing. Fran heads for the Louder House. Um, and she finds herself craving the urge to chew on some kelp, which is pretty disgusting. Um, but she knows that it's probably because she's pregnant. And that is the thought that takes her by surprise, because in the midst of everything that's been happening, Fran has not thought much about her so-called delicate condition. Before, she had always been discovering that I'm pregnant thought around odd corners, like some unpleasant mess she kept forgetting to clean up. I ought to be sure and get that blue dress to the cleaners before Friday. A few more months and I can hang it in the closet because I'm pregnant. I guess I'll take my shower now. In a few months, it'll look like there's a whale in the shower stall because I'm pregnant. I ought to get the oil changed in the car before the pistons fall right out of their sockets or whatever. And I wonder what Johnny down at the Sitco would say if he knew I'm pregnant. But maybe now she had become accustomed to the thought. After all, she was nearly three months along, nearly a third of the way there. For the first time, she wondered with some unease who would help her have her baby. When Fran finds herself at the Louders, she hears the sound of a lawnmower in the backyard. When she comes around the corner, what she sees takes her by surprise enough to keep her from laughing. Harold, in a tight, skimpy blue bathing suit, white skin sheened with sweat, floppy brown hair on his neck, his feet are green with cut grass. His back is red, although she can't tell if it's from the sun or the physical exertion. But Harold isn't just mowing. He's running. There is an octagonal summer house in the Louder's backyard, one that reminds Fran of when she and Amy were younger and would have their tea parties inside of it. There they would cry over the ending of Charlotte's Web or talk about boys, and it triggers a lot of nostalgia for Fran. But then there was Harold, interrupting her memory, running around the lawn with a mower. He had over half of the yard finished, but for the square in the middle that held the summer house. When he turns around and is halfway back up the slope of the lawn, he sees Fran for the first time. She can tell he's been crying, but when she calls out to him, he runs into the house mortified, leaving the lawnmower behind. Fran follows, but stays outside. Inside the house, she can hear him crying. When he doesn't answer her calls, she lets herself in, and she finds Harold at the table in the kitchen still weeping. This scene is very reminiscent of when Harold found Fran in the backyard of her own home, digging a hole to bury her father. He caught her at a vulnerable moment and upset her just as Fran had done here with him. Like Harold, um, Fran had even run into the kitchen. Harold had followed, much like Fran does here as well. But when she asks Harold what's wrong, he yells at her to go away because she doesn't like him. And then Fran replies with something that is so brutally honest and blunt. Yes, I do. You're okay, Harold. Maybe not great, but okay. 
In fact, considering the circumstances and all, I'd have to say that right now, you're one of my favorite people in the whole world. This seemed to make Harold cry harder. Fran tries to settle things a bit by asking if he has anything to drink. Apparently, he made Kool-Aid with the water pump in the back of the town hall. Over the years, it had become um, something more of an antiquity rather than a practical source of water. But now, it seems to be coming in handy again. Fran pours them a glass and then asks him what's wrong, specifically. Harold replies that he wants his mother. He explains that when she died, he thought to himself, Now that wasn't so bad. And he knows that it sounds terrible, but he never really knew how he would take it when they passed away. He is a sensitive person, and that's why he's bullied in high school. And Harold was afraid that their deaths would drive him mad with grief. But when it happened, his mom and his dad and Amy, his sister, he just thought, now that wasn't so bad. Harold gets frustrated at his inability to say what he really means, to express himself properly. I mean, he's supposed to be a writer, right? I've always been able to say what I meant. It's a writer's job to carve with the language, to who clothes the bone. So why can't I say what it feels like? I do wonder sometimes if that's ever how Stephen King has felt when trying to express himself verbally. We view writers as these people with impressive vocabularies and being able to sound so put together and polished, but not in Harold's case. But Fran understands what he means. When Harold found her in the backyard before, at her own house, she was out of her mind. Half the time, she couldn't remember what she was doing, and she tells him how she very nearly burned down the house, forgetting about the french fries that she had tried cooking. So to her, it makes, you know, it may, if it makes him feel better to mow the lawn, then he should mow the lawn, preferably um, in something other than a bathing suit. <laughs> Otherwise, he's going to get sunburned. Harold tries to explain how he's feeling. I never even liked them that well, he said, but I thought grief was something you felt anyway. Like your bladder's full, you have to urinate, and if close relatives die, you have to be grief-stricken. He talks about his mom and how she was always taken with Amy and was Amy's friend, and his dad was horrified with Harold. At some point, he had asked Harold if he was a, quote, queer boy, scaring Harold so bad he began to cry, which is when his dad slapped him and told him if he was going to be a baby all the time, he could just ride, out, ride on out of town. Amy just didn't give a shit. She was embarrassed by Harold, treating him like a messy bedroom whenever she brought her friends around. I would think, too, that Fran um, could probably relate a little bit more to Harold, knowing this about his father, because her mother was a piece of crap, too. Um, she, I was going to say she didn't ever physically abuse Fran, but in that chapter where uh, Fran told her about her pregnancy, she did get slapped in the face by her mom. So um, two very um, nasty parents right there. Harold is not sure how he would feel with them gone, um, but he does miss them more and more each day, specifically his mother, because she had been nice to him, even if she had never been there much for him when he needed her to be. So today he decided to mow the grass because if he was mowing the grass, he wasn't thinking about it. But then he began to mow faster and faster, like he could outrun it all. And that's when Fran came by. Fran assures Harold that there is nothing wrong with the way he feels. And Harold asks Fran if she would be his friend. And of course she says yes. The two of them end up having a picnic in the park. And it's there that Harold tells Fran that he wants to leave Maine and head for Vermont. That's where the plague center is in Stovington. 
if there are still people alive and working on the flu, that's where they'll be. Fran wonders why they wouldn't be dead too, and Harold admits that they might be. But those people are always working with communicable diseases, so they would take the right precautions. And they're probably looking for people like Harold and Fran, people who are immune. Fran is just in awe that Harold would know all of this, and she's pretty open with her admiration, which pleases him. She thinks that it's a wonderful idea. It appeals to her need for authority and structure, and she dismisses Harold's disclaimer that the people there might be dead. In her mind, they'll get to Stovington, they'll get tested, and those people would find something, some discrepancy to show the difference between the sick and the immune. And it does not occur to her to question what on earth a vaccine could possibly do for anyone now. But Fran is ready to find a road atlas, and she's ready to get going ASAP. She tells Harold as much, and his face lit up. For a moment, she thought he was going to kiss her, and in that single shining moment, she probably would have allowed it. But then the moment passed. In retrospect, she was glad. They get a map, and they plan a route from Agunquit to Stovington. Harold figures it'll be a little over 300 miles. Fran had the hope that they could walk, having read somewhere that one could walk through the entirety of New England in a day if they wanted to. And if anybody listening out there lives in New England, please tell me if that's true, because that's an interesting little fact. Harold thinks that it's just a, a gimmick, but you never know. He suggests motorbikes or bikes, and Fran just thinks he's a genius. They decide to bike to the Honda dealership in Wells the next day. Although Fran wants to leave as soon as possible, Harold wants to wait for morning. They need to gather supplies and they can do that in a gun quit because they know where everything is. Plus, they'll need guns. This makes Fran a little uneasy because why on earth would they need guns? Harold blushes and tries to explain that there are no more cops or the law. Fran is a pretty young woman. Some men might not be gentlemanly if they see her. Finally, Fran realizes what he's talking about, but she can't understand why anybody would want to assault her. She's pregnant, after all. But Fran agrees with Harold. They'll get guns. She still wants to leave for Wells that day, but Harold has something else he wants to do first. They take paint and paintbrushes to Moses Richardson's barn. Let's see if I can say that again. Moses Richardson's barn. <laughs> the barn overlooks U.S. Route 1. And Harold figures that that's the way most people will come through a gun quit. And they're inside the barn now, in the cupola, and Fran is really hot and uncomfortable. The food and Coca-Cola from their picnic is sloshing around in her stomach. She's worried Harold will fall and hurt himself, but it seems that he's semi-confident that he'll be okay. Harold notices that she looks sick, and he tells her to go downstairs and relax under a tree. Fran agrees to do so, but thinks that what he is about to do is really silly, even if it will make him feel better, knowing that it's there. Right before she leaves him, she does kiss him lightly on the mouth before she descends downstairs, but not before noticing the stunned happiness in his eyes. Fran, don't kiss him. What is wrong with you? <laughs> uh, anyway, the heat and the pregnancy get to Fran finally, and she only manages to get out of the barn um, before she vomits. She ends up napping under a nearby tree, and it's a quarter to four when Harold finally reappears. His sunburn is flaming red now, his arms splattered with white paint. Fran had been sure she would eventually hear his scream as he fell the 90 feet from the barn roof to the ground, but it had never come. Harold also brought the paint bucket back down, which she asks why he would do that. 
And Harold replies with something curious. He says, I wouldn't want to leave it up there. It might lead to spontaneous combustion. And we'd lose our sign. And she thought again how determined he was not to miss a single bet. It was just a little scary. Harold had risked life and limb to write on the side of the barn roof in large white painted letters, have gone to Stovington, Vermont Plague Center, U.S. 1 to Wells, Interstate 95 to Portland, U.S. 302 to Barrie, Interstate 89 to Stovington, leaving a gun quit July 2, 1990. Harold Emery Lauder, Francis Goldsmith. They go back to Harold's house and eat dinner, both prepared to finally leave behind their hometown. Later, when it's dark, Harold came over to France with a portable phonograph under his arm, the kind created for girls of 13 or 14 to take to the beach or lawn parties. The kind of phonograph constructed with 45 singles in mind, the ones by Sean Cassidy, the Osmonds, Leaf Garrett. Harold doesn't know if it still works, but Fran, who is overcome with emotion, says that they should find out. It did work, and for almost four hours they sat at the opposite ends of the couch, the portable phonograph on the coffee table before them, their faces lit with silent and sorrowful fascination, listening as the music of a dead world filled the summer night. So Fran and Harold are ready to leave a gun quit, and Harold wants to head for Stovington, which we already know is a dead end, and that Stu recently escaped from that place. Fran wants to go too because she still harbors some hope that there are people out there who will be able to test them and discover what it is that makes them different from the ones who have gotten sick. And we see here that Fran is craving authority. She's craving structure again, some semblance of the old world. Harold seems to have taken a bit of a lead here. And, you know, he's the one who explains why Vermont would be the proper destination. He's the one that decides that they should take motorbikes, wanting to leave the sign for any other survivors who might pass through, letting them know where he and Fran are headed and how to get there so they could all find each other. Harold is a very intelligent person, um, maybe too bright in some cases, um, but he is very clearly smitten with Fran, who either doesn't notice or notices and really can't do much about it. She does want to be his friend, and they don't have anyone else, honestly. Um, this chapter humanizes Harold. He's not just creepy Harold Louder, who is always checking out Fran's chest. And she does still find herself uneasy around him. But we get, um, we get some more insight into who Harold is and maybe why he is the way he is. Okay, fine. You know, he's overweight, and he's sensitive, and he's a writer, but these things do not define him. His parents were clearly neglectful, if not downright abusive to him, at least his father, slapping him around because he's afraid Harold might be gay, telling him to leave town if he can't stop crying. And he is clearly not the paternal type, and I think that he would be defined um, in this day and age as toxic masculinity, clearly disappointed that Harold did not you know, inherit that particular trait. His mom was, I think, abusive in other ways. Um, clearly preferring Amy over Harold, uh, not exactly being the kind of mother she should have been to Harold. Um, but hey, at least she was nice, right? And this is such a fascinating take on grief because when they died, Harold handled it pretty well. You know, he thought to himself, now that wasn't so bad. Um, and this is when he thought he might be overcome with grief, given how sensitive he is. 
But he felt, um, I guess, emotionally detached from the loss. Even when he visited Fran in the earlier chapter, as she was dealing with the numbness of grief herself, Harold seemed to be to be very dismissive of his mom's death. You know, life goes on, doesn't it? But as the days passed, Harold found himself missing his family um, more and more. His sister, his dad, and yes, especially his mom. And maybe he was in shock over everything that had happened without really knowing it. Maybe the loneliness was starting to drive him crazy because being in that house all alone can do that to a person. It made him crave the people who were never really there for him at all, but at least they filled the space. And now they're gone. He didn't think Fran liked him, which she didn't, so he felt utterly alone. He couldn't reach out to her either. So he began to frantically mow because he thought he could somehow outrun his thoughts. And I'm glad we got to see the side of Harold. Um, It made him feel more like a, I don't really want to say a well-rounded person, but definitely a fleshed out character. He's not just the creepy boy down the street. Yes, he still has his creepy moments, but he's not, he's not great, as Fran would say, but he might not be that bad either. He has some kind of empathy inside of him and Growing up in the household that he did couldn't have been easy, especially if school wasn't any easier. High school can be hell to a lot of kids, and Harold called it the house of horrors the town fathers saw fit to call a high school. Fran knows this. She admitted before that Amy was always the pretty popular one and Harold was abrasive, but maybe he had reason to be. I think having Harold open up softened Fran a bit toward him as well. I like that she reassured him that he was allowed to feel the way he was feeling, and he could mow if it made him feel better. She didn't blow him off or find him repulsive, you know, or think that he should buck it up and wipe those tears away and be a man. Fran knows that Harold needs her, and I think she knows that she needs him too in a way. Her pregnancy is also sort of simmering there on the back burner in her mind. She's been so preoccupied with her parents dying, um, Captain Tripp's taking out the country, the power going off, the death of Gus Dinsmore. Basically, her entire world is gone. Oh, and she's pregnant. (laughs) It may not be something that's really affecting her now beyond the nausea, but it will soon as she gets farther along. And who will be there to help her deliver the baby? She is three months in. She's got six months or so to figure this out. I also really like the beginning of the chapter. Um, It reminded me of Nick and Janie Baker, Fran helping Gus in the last day or so of his life, staying with him even through the worst of it, reading to him when he was lucid again and maybe out of of the woods. Um, But she didn't bury him. I don't think she had the physical capabilities of doing so at this point. But she left him in a bed overlooking the ocean, and I found that really sweet of her, given that he worked near the public beach and spent his days by the ocean every day. Fran is not a perfect woman. She even says she's not the most practical person, but she does have a good heart, um, maybe to a fault, because her new softness and acceptance of Harold may be giving him the wrong impression. But Harold and Fran are going to be heading towards Stovington. And so, where's Stu? Do you think some of our main characters will finally begin to connect and meet? We will find out next week in chapter 37 when we finally catch up with Stu again and find out just where he wandered off to after escaping the Stovington CDC. And that is the end of chapter 36. I really like how King ended this chapter. Um, Some of the really subtle 
soft moments that he puts in there at the end of these chapters really um, trigger a lot of emotion. Uh, the end of the chapter where um, we revisited Arnett to find it empty, um, full of the dead, everything quiet, but those wind chimes. And now the end of this chapter with Harold and Fran listening to the phonograph, the music of a dying world. It's just really hits home how things have changed and will never be the same. It also continues to set up the fact that our main characters are now leaving their comfort zones and heading out into the world to find other survivors. Um, So no doubt they will start meeting each other, and that's where things really get interesting. If you guys have any thoughts on this chapter, feel free to email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media at thecircleopens. And if you are enjoying this podcast, um, you can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Um, That would be really great. It helps me out. helps the podcast get uh, uh, noticed, I guess. And I really do appreciate every single review and rating that you guys leave me. So thank you very much for that. And that being said, that's it for this episode, everybody. Um, Thank you for continuing on this journey with me through the stand. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.